the Christmas decorations, despite it all, were up on the Champs-Élysées. And that year, the theme was all the trees that line it were drenched in red colors. And I took a picture that showed parts of armored cars, trees drenched in red and tear gas. That is an image that stays with me from that, from the violence of it. The protest does not appear to have dissipated. This week, the government announced that it would suspend that plan increase, which was due in January. Now Here in Hong Kong, a city that has been shaken by violence after protests last weekend. However, protesters remain defiant and they say they're going to turn out to the streets regardless. Police have mobilized 90,000 officers across the country. Authorities here have responded by making several arrests overnight of key protest figures and by banning a very highly anticipated protest here this weekend. I'm Genevieve Collins. I'm Jake Leishner, and this is Pounding the Pavement. The Yellow Vest Movement was a response to the announcement of a forthcoming hike in fuel taxes. However, it quickly evolved into a broader movement that brought international attention to an all-too-forgotten group the French working class in cities, towns, and rural areas across the nation. The intro clip is from our interview with Elaine Ganley, a veteran reporter and Paris-based correspondent for the Associated Press, describing her experiences reporting on Les Gilets Jaunes, or the Yellow Vests. She was on the ground during the movement, witnessing the front lines of the protests and interviewing participants. We also talked with Emily Tran, a professor in the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. A French national, Dr. Tran completed her education in France before working at universities in both mainland China and Hong Kong. Given her expertise in the politics of France and Hong Kong, she'll make some appearances in our future episodes too. France is no stranger to protests and strikes. Stretching back to the French Revolution, the citizenry has engaged in civil disobedience and revolutionary activity, which has resulted in five iterations of the French Republic. In reflecting their current discontent, the Yellow Vest graffitied busy streets with slogans like Macron equals Louis XVI, or even simply King Macron, emphasizing the disconnect between the head of government and his polity. Emmanuel Macron won the 2017 presidential election on a liberal centrist platform defeating his far-right opponent, Marine Le Pen, in a runoff election. Early into his tenure, he made sweeping tax and pension reforms. He cut corporation taxes and employer payroll charges and abolished the wealth tax, all while reducing housing benefits, family allowances, and pensions. It soon became clear that his economic policies saddled the poor while shifting financial responsibility from the elite. He was seen from the start by many, not just the yellow vest, but they certainly underscored it as an elitist president. He had not been a politician in the past. He had not been an elected official. He wasn't in that game. He eventually ended up at the finance ministry before becoming president, but he had previously worked at Rothschild Bank. So that just blows minds for everybody. 
Macron's image as an elitist was reinforced as he pursued policies that seemed to ignore the needs of the average French citizen. Macron was set on decarbonizing the economy, but chose pathways towards this goal that did not fully take into account their impact on the working class. Here's Dr. Tran. One way to do it in terms of public policies, to increase the taxes, to force people to move away from certain types of highly polluting cars to less polluting cars. This is exactly what Macron did. In the fall of 2018, his government announced an increase in fuel taxes scheduled to take effect at the start of 2019. Although this proposed tax hike would affect everyone at the pump, it threatened to disproportionately impact the working class people living outside of major cities. The people who started this protest, they depend incredibly on their cars to get about because they're in towns where they're the service, there are less and less services. They have to get to work. Things are spread out. You're not in a dense place like Paris where you can just have everything accessible to you. Soon after the announcement of the fuel tax hike, several French citizens made videos in which they directly addressed President Macron and listed the grievances of the working classes. Uh, one was a truck uh, driver. Another one was actually Jacqueline Moreau, uh, was a... Uh, uh, just a 50-year-old uh, woman, and uh, they did these videos on YouTube, and they put them on uh, Facebook, and they said, those of you who have enough of uh, paying too much, uh, let us gather and let us say our disagreement. I would note that the yellow vest did not start in Paris, and each Saturday when they held their protests, they were in cities around France, and their origin was actually on the little roundabouts in towns, in small towns, and suburban towns all around France. France is full of roundabouts. On the 17th, protesters occupied and blocked an estimated 1,500 roundabouts across the country, as well as a number of fuel depots, and they donned the vibrant yellow vests, which motorists are required to keep in their vehicles under French law. Although the initial demonstrations remained relatively peaceful, Protests grew increasingly violent as they moved from peripheral towns and rural locales into urban centers. They started on, uh, was November 17th, 2018, and by December 1st, three weeks later, it was every Saturday, by December 1st, really hell broke out on the Champs-Élysées and elsewhere, most notably the, the Arch of Triumph, which you can enter actually, and tourists can enter. Uh, they, they put graffiti all over it. Um, cars were being burned all around, windows of the luxury shops all smashed. And uh, they broke into the uh, Arch of Triumph and uh, literally broke the Statue of Marianne, which is the uh, symbol of France. This was appalling to everyone. And, and this was only three weeks after it started. The Interior Minister estimated that on December 1st, nearly 140,000 people took part in protests across the country, many of which turned violent and involved riot police. In addition to what Elaine witnessed, about 100 cars were burned in Paris, and the mayor estimated that the protesters had caused between $3.4 and $4.5 million worth of damage to the city. In the following weeks, violent protests continued around the country, from Paris to Marseille, Angers, Bordeaux, and beyond, and peaceful gatherings were drowned out by what many French politicians deemed insurrectional. 
Here's Elaine discussing the destruction in Paris. I remember at one point a bank that I walked by every day, it was trashed and burned. Um, everything was, all the papers from the bank, I mean, if you were a client there, they were on the sidewalk. They're decorative metal bases for trees in Paris uh, were used to picked up and smash in the windows. We no longer have decorative metals around trees. Although Macron suspended the fuel tax hike by early December, protests continued and violence escalated. Elaine and other reporters in the thick of the protest were issued helmets, body armor, and even gas masks. Police used tear gas and flashballs, often called defensive ball launchers or LBDs, which caused dozens of civilians to sustain serious eye injuries. By the end of the protest, 11 people had died, 23 had lost their eyesight, and five had lost their hands from grenades. I do remember um, on the Champs-Élysées again, being confronted with a police officer who had his, I think it was a flashball, pointed at me and a young man that I was standing beside because they dragged the young man's friend behind the line by their buses and were just kicking him like crazy. The young man, and I, I watched this happen, and I hadn't seen them doing anything. And uh, the young man, whom I happened to be standing beside, I actually tried to go behind the line. I got pushed back, and he said, but what are you doing? What, he did nothing. What are you, why, why are you doing this? Da, 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 da. And this cop, I mean, he had his thing, and it was trained right there like that. And so I did not identify myself as a journalist because I thought, why should I? This guy is really nervous. <laughs> He's got this big thing in his hand. Just why make it worse? You know, I'm interested in my own safety. Dr. Tran explains how institutional factors and in the organization of French police forces contributed to the violence they perpetrated against their citizens. Uh, we have different uh, types of uh, police force and um, not all of them are fully trained or are trained at all to handle uh, protesters. Actually, in the case of France, during the Yellow Vest protest, they were the uh, Brigade Anti-Criminal, basically the police uh, dealing with criminality who were put on the street to help up the anti-protest police. So you see, those are two different types of categories of police. You have one that is dealing with criminality. Uh, so they will look at the protesters as criminals to start with. And they do things to them uh, not in line with what the protesters are, because they should be identified not as criminal in the first place, but as protesters. And they should have different tactics to handle them. Losing popularity among his people, respect from abroad, and a general sense of control over France's streets, Macron made a bold move in mid-January. Emmanuel Macron took the initiative to call for a national great debate, le grand débat national. He went around and held town hall meetings all over France himself. There were debates. And he went into these little schools or wherever, whatever, wherever they were being held, and he um, talked to them, he debated, he was, you know, rolled up his sleeves and did his thing. And so he put a lot of effort into trying to turn things around. Over the course of the debates, public support for the yellow vests, which had once been very high, began to wane. 
Protests decreased in size and frequency with occasional marches and demonstrations held into the latter half of 2019. In one case, it was a rather great uh, political success for Emmanuel Macron, although I'm not saying that all those uh, great debate uh, words uh, have translated into somehow a public policy, but the Yellow Vest did gain a lot of uh, subsidies, uh, economic subsidies after this great debate. Since Macron and the government in France uh, accepted to uh, postpone the raise of the full price, accepted to have the grand debate, accepted to give actually billions of subsidies to the Yellow Vest and this type, these socioeconomic categories, they basically had very much everything they wanted very fast. So the movement dragged on because they uh, built up other type of demands. And at some point there were more than 100 yellow vest demands, which makes basically that diluted the whole objective of the movement. The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic saw a complete halt to all large gatherings in France, including the yellow vest protests, which had already been waning in size and support. However, even despite social distancing regulations, les Gilets jaunes have seen a relative resurgence in the latter months of 2020, though nowhere near their peak in late 2018 and early 2019. The Yellow Vests unified people on issues of inequality and frustrations with elitism, but there were still divisions within their ranks, which we will discuss at further length in a bit. The Yellow Vest movement has a number of striking characteristics, including its long duration, the violence, and the government response it elicited, that make it a unique case study among street protests. However, its leaderless nature, which both Elaine and Dr. Tran emphasized, is particularly fascinating. How was a movement able to sustain itself for as long as the Gilets jaunes did without any chief authority or power structure? There were some individual protesters who rose to prominence online or at actual protests. However, no single person or group emerged as a figurehead. John Litchfield, a journalist who covered the protests, explains that the Yellow Vest protesters, quote, do have informal leaders or spokespeople, but they are rejected or disputed or threatened with violence by other gilets jaunes as soon as they emerge, end quote. This echoed much of what we heard from Elaine. Different people arose as quasi-leaders even though they weren't appointed and not everyone agreed. And I'm thinking of interviews we did with different, I won't call them leaders, representatives of the Yellow Vests. And, you know, they, they, they got very full of themselves and they were people who had invisible lives and who suddenly had this gigantic national platform. Those who emerged as representative of the group, they were the political landscape, they, they covered it. The sociological composition of the protesters was relatively homogenous. The group was predominantly white, struggling financially, though not the poorest section of society, and employed in low paying service and manual labor, the public sector and agriculture. Women were well represented too. However, the group was not unified politically. Several quasi leaders profiled by the Financial Times reveal how they spent and the political spectrum from the far right to the far left. In that respect, there was often little common political ground between subgroups of the protesters. Yet this leaderless movement carried on despite this ideological dissonance, largely due to social media. So the usage of social media, the existence, very much existence of social media 
basically uh, dispense them to resort to more traditional chain of commands, such as going through labor union, political association, political parties. So social media was very important as a link among individuals who were not in any type of circles of associations of socialization uh, before, and it was very useful. However, in lacking true leadership, the Gilets Jaunes also lacked direction, discipline, and bargaining power. The uh, protesters um, were using tactics of uh, uh, a leaderless movement tactics, you know, because you don't have a head, you don't have someone that gives you the line of conduct, you don't have someone that tells you from A to Z, we are going to do this and that. So uh, during the protest, things evolve and they evolve very swiftly through the usage of uh, social uh, media. The outcome was not necessarily a, a positive outcome because at some point inside the movement, it, uh, it was not in their favor, not to have a representative going to the negotiation table and um, basically organize a, a kind of uh, um, discipline uh, and also relay the messages. In many respects, the movement's leaderless nature is what allowed it to grow and spread so rapidly. Without a clear authority and corresponding political leaning, People from across the spectrum were drawn to take part in the protests, many of whom had never participated before in a protest and refused political or union affiliations. Additionally, social media made possible this grassroots movement, as local groups across the country, unencumbered by a leader or gatekeeper, joined forces on Facebook and organized events and protests. And yet, although its leaderlessness is what defined the Gilets Jaunes, it's also what's responsible for the movement's eventual division and dilution. Protesters differed in their demands, and without a leader, they were unable to agree on a shared set of objectives for the movement or even what they wanted from the government. Some protesters also employed violence in their bid to be heard, while others stood staunchly against such tactics. And without a designated representative, the Yellow Vests were unable to dialogue and bargain with the government. For many of those reasons, some observers of France have remarked that the Yellow Vest movement and its participants are beyond categorization. However, one overarching feature is clear. The Gilets Jaunes felt abandoned by their president. Though they may have had different ideologies and demands, they felt themselves to be invisible, laboring under rising living costs and a government indifferent to their struggles. Through their weekly protests, they gain the attention of the world and the attention of their country.